Welcome to AI Nerd, AI with Attitude, where I try to make things as unnerdy as possible. Enjoy learning today about the latest trending technology. But before we begin, please subscribe, hit the notifications button, give it a like, and drop a comment below. Welcome to AI Nerd, AI with Attitude. Today, I'm going to give a bit of attitude to Matt Sanchez. He is the founder and chief technology officer of Cognoscale. Matt, how in the world are you doing there today? Hey, Thomas. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I think my weather's slightly better than yours is in Atlanta, Georgia. You're down in Austin, Texas. Did you did you did you tell me it was going to snow in Austin, Texas? Yeah, supposedly we're supposed to get the, uh, the most snow we've had since the 60s in the next uh, few days here in Austin. So It's going to be chaos. You guys thought you had a raining water problem a few years ago. This, this is just going to cause this oh, yeah. ice on the trees, branches falling uh power going out i mean it's uh, it's going to be interesting it's supposed to be below freezing for like four or five days in a row which just doesn't happen here so it'd be great well that's not why we came on today though you uh you you have an incredible background in ai and you can, i've met a lot of people who and i'm gonna put my fingers up do ai mm -hmm. however you actually are one of the few that's actually really done something in the ai space and i'm going to be quite a second if you could Tell me about you, you, you know, your background and how you got to become the CTO of Cognoscale. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so I started um, uh, my career in the software industry um, many years ago. And I, I was, um, so I've been a software engineer my whole life. That's my whole professional life. Um, and uh, when I was uh, at IBM um, around 2011, um, I had the opportunity to be part of the team that's got to take the Watson technology straight from the research um, organization there and start commercializing it. And um, I knew very little about, uh, at that point, AI, we weren't really saying the words AI, at least in the enterprise space. Um, IBM had coined the term cognitive computing and that was what we were talking about. And AI was sort of this old thing that had died off a long time ago. And so things like machine learning, uh, which are commonplace now, were, were um, uh, you know, 10 years ago, they were just starting to reemerge. Um, and yet we had this technology called this, this magic answer box <laughs> called Watson um, that had just defeated Jeopardy champions. And it was a pretty interesting piece of technology, but um, you know, the, the, what was the market for a magic answer box? Um, nobody knew, we, so we had to go figure that out. And um, so I spent about three years leading an effort to figure that out. What are the, what are the applications we can build with this uh, Watson technology? And there was a lot of interesting technology inside of the Watson system. Um, and we had to take that in and create it, something that could be used by financial, financial services institutions, by healthcare organizations, by um, a lot of the customers IBM wanted to take Watson to. So uh, that's how I started in the AI space, building systems, figuring out how to make uh, what was very complex technology fit inside of a, literally fit inside of a box um, so that customers can use it. And um, and thinking through some of the challenges that customers had with this, uh, just having, having their data ready uh, was a big challenge. So did that for three years and then um, really saw an opportunity to build something new. And I've always, uh, I, I ended up at IBM through an acquisition, um, was always had sort of an entrepreneurial uh, mindset. I've always liked to be part of startups, um, build companies from the ground up. It's, uh, it's what I really enjoy doing. And 
Um, so when I had the opportunity to go do that again, um, 2013, I took it and uh, started Cognitive Scale. Um, and our focus at Cognitive Scale is really helping customers to um, bridge what I like to think of as this last mile problem uh, in, the, in the enterprise AI space, um, which, which really is, there's, if you think about it, there are um, uh, really a, a good collection of tools out there um, I can choose to use lots and lots of different types of tools and platforms and data uh, techniques uh, that are available at my fingertips to build AI systems today. But how do I go from the, the predictions and the insights that these AIs create to actual actions and learning and the ability to see that that's actually driving real results? Um, that last mile of bridging from the, what we think of as the data, the insights, the action and the learning uh, is, it tends to be a big challenge for a lot of uh, a lot of companies. So we set out to build um, a platform that can help our customers do that um, at scale and to really drive efficiency around how they build uh, and, and leverage, harness the power of, of AI technologies. And that sounds like a nice lead in how you got the cognitive scale. I mean, that's the name of it. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, you know, and you, okay. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going to summarize maybe a bit too, one of the original AI uh, developers for Watson, IBM Watson. And we can discuss where that's gone because you used to see promos all the time for this. And uh, and I thank IBM a whole bunch for creating, spending billions into what's now become an industry and really launching, I think, some of that. And you were part of that, which is really amazing. Um, and you build Cognitive Scale. So day one, you set off to do it. So talk, you know, there's a difference between where it is today and where it used to be. Because I've known you guys a little while. Uh, and the the where you I just just talk about that because where you started to where you are today um, is an incredible journey by itself. Yeah, so we started, um, you know, I sort of started talking to scale in my dining room um, once I made the decision to leave IBM, and uh, you know, the idea was that we uh, really back in 2013 envisioned uh, a new class of application that our customers would needed to build um, AI and machine learning technologies even today are um, somewhat uh, challenging to, to harness. Um, but the question really was, what kinds of applications can I really build uh, in the enterprise with these? And, and how do I do that the right way? Um, and, and really applications that were not just um, data and analytical in nature, but they actually helped people um, we think of as augmented intelligence, help people actually leverage that technology to do their job better or to help customers get what they need better. Um, and so there was a set of properties that we thought about these applications. They had to be able to communicate with humans in a way that was more natural uh, for humans to communicate. Uh, they had to be able to, um, to learn um, from human behavior or learn from interaction. Uh, so we have this notion of this feedback loop that needs to be there in these, in these applications. And, and they had to run wherever the data was. Um, most of our customers have data um, either on-prem or in the cloud or a combination of those places. And so these, these systems, these applications had to be able to really move the compute to the data. Um, and that was an important aspect of it as well. And then the last piece that we really uh, ran into right away um, was that you need to be able to, these systems have to be trustworthy in the sense that the end customer needs to trust that whatever coming out of these AI systems um, is free from bias, uh, that you can explain how those answers or those, those predictions were, um, were created, and that the data that was used for that is the, is, uh, is the right kind of data. 
um, that the data itself wasn't corrupted or biased or uh, so forth. So we had to be able to explain to end users, for example, um, care managers in the healthcare organization that the recommendations we were giving them about their patients were, were sound. Um, and so that, that evidence that needed to be behind these systems became a really important new type of data asset that uh, every organization needs to keep track of. And it's an important aspect of what we think of as trust uh, or trusted AI. Um, and so that really is kind of how we've looked at the market that there's sort of three big problems customers face uh, with AI systems. The first being data quality, just lack of the data they need to build um, or to harness AI. Uh, the second being this idea of black box AI. So not knowing how the AI models are working uh, not being able to trust what they're telling you is a big problem. Uh, it's a big problem for compliance. It's a big problem for just end customer trust and brand trust as well. Uh, we nobody wants to create a rogue AI that causes your brand to be, um, you know, uh, to lose uh, confidence uh, in the market. And then the final issue is just ongoing impact. Do we know that AI is actually having an impact? Um, are the models working correctly, or are they not? Or is there a point in time when those models stop working? <laughs> Uh, because the data has changed or something else has changed. Uh, how do we continue to monitor that and, and improve upon on those systems? So those three challenges are really what we set out to solve with, with Cognitive Scale, with our platform, with our Cortex. Thomas, looks like you're on mute. That was a fantastic monologue, just ruined by the mute button. Um, they have... You know, that's the best, right? It's real. It's really, it's now officially a meeting. We've had an error in the technology. The, um, I was saying you actually pointed out, I think, a really good point of uh, why companies and why AI hasn't just taken over the world like it was predicted. And I think you've just, I've heard you describe it in other meetings as the bookends. Can you talk about like in the context of having your data right and having the people and having, you know, expectations for the system, you, talking about what you meant in a what you mean, I heard you say this, but you have to kind of control the whole process and maybe explain a technology that has the bookends. It might be like a Google, right? Or something like that. And versus a corporate buyer of even your technology of how are they really going to adopt this? So it's not always got this kind of tail in it doesn't work. Yeah, so that's a good question. So when I talk about the bookends, I'm talking about on one side, you have data, um, the raw ingredients essentially required to power these systems. And on the other end of that, you have your end customer. Um, and what they need for end user and what they need. Um, and a great example of, of an application out there happens to be owned by Google uh, that, that does this is Waze. Um, Waze over time has gotten to the point where uh, what it's really trying to do as the end user, as the driver, give me just the right information at the right time. If Waze was to tell me that you know, 30 miles up the road, there's, a, there's a, an object in the road, it's not very useful. If it tells me that 300 yards look out for something because I'm about to hit it or in two miles there's an accident, here's a new route you need to take. It's that just-in-time information, it's that contextual information that makes it really, really powerful. So the end user starts to, starts to provide the feedback into that. They start to understand it and use it. And on the back end of that, it's sort of the closed loop. They have the feedback from the user, they have the data required to power the system. And so as an application, it just works well. It's, it works um, you know, like magic, right? And that's that's what we, what we want. What I see happening on either side of that in, in the enterprise context, when I try to go into a, an enterprise and create a brand new capability that uses AI, 
either the data side of it isn't connected properly or they don't have the right data or their data infrastructure isn't there. Or on the end user side, they, they, um, they sort of stop short of taking it all the way to the end application. Uh, you create more data, you can use machine learning to create predictions or forecasts. Uh, classic example being, if I were to be able to predict for you that your top, here are your the 10 customers that are gonna churn next month, right? You're gonna lose these customers. And I just hand that to you and you say, oh, this is interesting. I didn't realize, what am I doing? What should I do with this information? I have this wonderful information that AI has created for me. What, what exactly do I do with it? And so in the Waze example, they took it all the way to the endpoint and said, well, we're not just going to give you a prediction. We're going to give it to you in a way that's action, that's actionable. Um, and of course, if you take that forward now and you look at autonomous vehicles, now we're, we're using that same kind of information to, it, to automate an entire, the entire capability, which is driving a car down the road. Um, I think most organizations want to get to the point where AI can be a big part of that sort of automated or autonomous capability. But before we do that, we got to figure out how to connect that last part of going from insight to action and then action to learning, because we need these systems if they're going to ever drive automation um, and, and get the maximum efficiency, they have to be able to learn and improve. And we have to be able to control them uh, in the right way uh, as well, because that's another part that most organizations end up struggling with and that last mile problem is okay great we have a model it seems to be working how do we make sure that this is compliant how do we make sure we actually trust what it's doing um and so forth that that's what i mean by that last mile problem those bookends are really really critical uh to making it successful well so you know if you if you're you're always gonna have a problem with data because you're not always gonna be able to control what the source is. Waze is a good example, right? Some, a bunch of people can have fun in line, so there's a cop ahead exactly. and there's never, and so, but the, the, but in that example, let's say the validation or the trusting of a model, like, well, based on, this is what you're doing with Cortex, right? So it's, it is basically, regardless of what your data is, you can, you can say you can trust the model to make, the model to make good decisions based upon the, the data that's been given. You can't always control the data. So one of the things you guys are solving, if I understand right, is you're solving the, the, the problem of trust of the model's recommendations itself, less so about what the data you're using. And that may indicate that they may need to use different data. Is, is that, am I saying that somewhat fair? And, and please expand it if I haven't, but I, I think it's interesting because it's, it's really solving the last mile problem of, I can trust this decision. Yes, that's, that is what we tend to focus on, but there's six dimensions of trust, okay? Uh, of which data quality is absolutely one of those dimensions. And so we do have to look at the quality of the information and whatever assumptions we're making about the data, we need to make sure those assumptions are still true a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, because if they change in, in certain ways, then other assumptions we've made downstream might break. Um, so that data quality is one of the key dimensions of trust. But we also think of bias and fairness. Um, in a lot of places, we wanna make sure that the decisions we're making uh, are free from unwanted bias. Um, not all bias is bad, but there are certain biases that are unwanted or illegal potentially. And we gotta make sure those are not there. Uh, we gotta make sure we can explain that entire value chain. If you think about data being on one side and the insights and actions being on the very far, there's a whole value chain in the middle that we need to have an understanding of how did that data become the insights and the actions and, and what were all the decisions made along the way. Um, so that's explainability across, you know, sort of end to end explainability. We need to know about the model itself. We need to peer inside the black box. Uh, is it is it robust, for example? Meaning, 
the model works great on my test data, but at the minute I bring in something that the minute I bring an outlier in that I didn't plan for, does the model start making wrong decisions? Um, where is where are those breakpoints where the model starts to stops working? How do I test for that? Um, compliance. What are my compliance requirements as I'm dealing with? Like you mentioned automated decisions. There are very specific compliance requirements around automated decisions. Uh, do I am I complying with those requirements? Um, performance. Ultimately, I want my model to perform well. It's got to be accurate. It's got to do what it's supposed to do. So these dimensions, I need to I need to take them holistically, and I need to monitor all of them. I need to measure all of them, and I need a way to make sense out of all of them. And so we've created something we call this AI Trust Index, along with our partner AI Global, which is a nonprofit who's working with um, regulators, they're working with organizations like ours in the industry uh, and customers to really start to democratize this idea that you need to have uh, end and trust in these systems, and we need to a common language to speak about what is what is trust, what does it mean to have bias-free AI in financial services? What does it mean to have explainable AI in healthcare? Um, so we're working with organizations like AI Global in the context of this trust index to really give our customers a way to have that common language to speak about yeah. things and measure them. And so that's what I mean by you know this, this idea that um, if, you, if you take that out of the equation, uh, you know, there's plenty of examples where you've seen this gone wrong um give, give one i think that'd be helpful to show like here's an example of clear bias uh, or uh maybe just give an example of where that has absolutely been proved that the model did something that was truly an inequality based yeah so i think the the my favorite example although it's not really one you can't really point to one thing you can point to some decisions that were made by maybe product designers and and some others uh that led to this conclusion but from the public perspective, it looked absolutely uh, like this was a sexist decision that was being made. And that is the Apple card when it first launched. Um, and very publicly, um, some people like Steve Wozniak were out there saying, hey, wait a minute. When my wife applies for the Apple card, she gets a very different credit limit than when I apply for it. But we live in the same house. We have the same income, right? But why? Why is this happening? And this was recorded in multiple place cases where celebrities were coming out saying, yeah, it's not working for me either. And so much so that, um, you know, Apple, of course, uh, the Apple card's backed by a financial institution, happened to be Goldman Sachs. And they explained what happened that initially, at least, they were not considering household level income. They were considering individuals only. And so uh, in the case of Steve Wozniak, his wife didn't have a uh, an income. Um, and so her income being zero it didn't consider the fact that steve's income was actually quite a bit higher than zero and therefore she, they should have treated them as one household so their their decisions they made about how the algorithm worked uh it wasn't explicitly that they programmed it incorrectly or that there was bias uh, explicit bias but this is the issue is that a lot of times these systems can have implicit bias um hidden bias and it's this notion of fairness through unawareness that it's a fallacy that if I just remove all the variables that have that could potentially lead to bias, if I remove gender, I remove ethnicity, race, age, if I remove these things from my from my data, um, and I just pretend like they don't exist and don't even consider them, then of course I can't be biased against those things. But in reality, you can introduce implicit biases um, either because the data has proxies for those same variables in it, or through 
decisions like in the case of Apple Card, where they just be, by not considering something, by not including household, they in from the public's view introduced something that appeared biased when technically it probably wasn't, but created a PR problem for sure. And and those are the kinds of problems that most organizations don't want. Um, and legally, there was, I don't think there was a legal issue, I think, because they, they, by the letter of the law, they were not creating, they were not using information they weren't supposed to. In fact, they're excluding it. But still, the PR issue is there. So a lot of organizations are worried about those types of challenges where they don't want their brand to be damaged by the fact that they're using technology. Uh, AI, you know, gets sort of probably the, probably is the, at the top of the list of technologies that can cause this. And so they need a way to, to measure these things, to test them. And actually what we believe is why not certify that you've done that, right? Just like I can have a certified, uh, you know, building that it's energy efficient. Why not have the same thing for AI? Um, so another example of what I know, I know you probably, I think you talked to uh, Ashley Kassovan recently. Yeah. We, we, um, that, that's the kind of trigger my interest. One of the things that Ashley's working on as well as, and then we work with them quite a bit on is how do we get to, level where we can actually certify that people are um, using AI in a responsible manner. Um, and I think the industry would be interested in that. I think they're going to, I think that's going to be an important area. I, I think it's going to be critical uh, for the, for just the adoption and, and trust and, and particularly when you aim it towards uh, state uh, sponsored. <laughs> you know, yeah, for sure. Uh, maybe give an example of how you guys have saved a company with your technology that we uncovered this unknown implicit, or explicit bias in, in their decision. And so they could correct their model. Like, can you, give, can you give an example of one of those? I, I can't give a specific example, um, but I can give you uh, some categories of examples, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I get that, but that'd be great just to learn how it, it's being applied in real world. I guess that's the, that's the idea. Sure. So uh, where we see this being applied, uh, you know, uh, decisions about uh, income, um, you know, if, if you're trying to do predictive models to try to predict somebody's income, it's very easy to introduce biases in there. Um, uh, decisions about credit, um, where potentially because of, again, not explicitly in the data, but, but more implicitly, uh, there are trends in the data that could potentially lead to uh, issues with things like what was called redlining, where certain, based on where you live, not necessarily uh, who you are or anything else, you might get a worse terms on a loan um, because of some of these implicit bias issues in the data. Um, in the healthcare space, uh, deci making decisions about who gets what kind of care and how much of that care, um, there's a tremendous amount of automation going on in the back office uh, today. And the physicians don't always necessarily trust that information. They may disagree with that information. And so they want better transparency in understanding how those decisions are being made. So providing explanations to the end user, in this case, a physician, is really important. And so we see that being a really a key element as well. The um, reality is that a lot of the tools that exist for data scientists, um, they produce a lot of rich information about how models work. That information isn't necessarily is not understandable by an end user, and so how do you explain? You know, if it was me and I applied for a loan and I was denied the loan, how do how what my question is? What could I do differently? 
Now, what do I need to change to actually get to it? And getting to that level of individual uh, end user explanation, um, here's what I could have done differently. Here are the things I need to change to, to get a better outcome. That I think is a really important area in the space because it allows me as the customer to really understand recourse, um, to understand that I wasn't discriminated against, that actually it's because of these other factors that are perfectly legitimate. Um, and now I know what my recourse is. I know what I can do to get a better outcome. I think that's incredibly important as well. I do. And I, I think one of the, <laughs> I think your uh, service of care for how your healthcare is provided for, having the understanding that it wasn't, and it often is now a financial decision to offer this type of care or retract this type of care because it's not as profitable for a hospital or a doctor's office will be incredibly important because those are just, especially insurance, things like that, why you're denied. It's a big math problem for the costs more so than your actual care. And, and I, I, I personally believe that it's financially, a hundred percent financially driven and in, in only are you considered for your own wellness because it, it's a better financial model for the for the insurance companies and, and the providers of that. So I think having a lot of transparency around that's going to meet an incredible amount of resistance in reality. But, but it's, it's, it's so needed because sometimes you just don't get why things are denied. You don't get why you're being re recommended to do these 400 tests. Like, like there's, it just seems like such a business model around the, the, the ICD codes and other things that, and then the type of care that you get just seems right now just tailored towards money and less so about really prevention or wellness. I, I know it's a bigger topic. I, I, I just, but I, short answer is I, I absolutely see application for it there for sure. Well, people are concerned about that. I think, uh, and rightly so there isn't, uh, I think more transparency is absolutely needed. Um, but I, I think to get that, to get to that, um, it does start with, uh, again, back to the value chain, right? You think about where those decisions are being made. Where does the transparency break down today? I think it breaks down way too far down the chain. And so trying to move that up to provide, you know, the, the point of care, the, the right level of information to provide them the patient, the right level of information. I think um, there is a way to get there, but it does require us being able to explain these decisions at a level that makes sense to ultimately the patient. Um, and so th those are definitely uh, important topics. Uh, I think uh, transparency in, you know, we've regulated this in the sense of in the United States for lending, we have to have, we have to have transparency from mortgages, for example, um, uh, and meaning every financial institution has to publish information about the mortgages that are being applied for and that are being granted. Um, and so there's transparency there, um, and the, at least the data is available. Um, but same thing needs to happen in, I think, in other industries, and that transparency will, will be uh, part of it is the challenge is it's not just data that's, that you need to make available. It's yeah. decision logic. How was the decision made? Um, and are, can we prove that that decision was sound and was not, did not take into consideration things that were, um, uh, you know, not, <laughs> that, that were unintended, these unintended biases or implicit bias. I, I love the direction you guys are going with this. And I, I know the, you know, the developer platform you have with just the beta, to make, you know, to, to create a, this is a whole different area. We probably we won't cover today, but how you need to build these systems, you know, is provided with Cognitive Scale. I've seen the, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shorten it to developer kit, but it's an AI development uh, mm -hmm. 
interface. I, I, I'm not using the right word, throw it in there, but it's beautiful. <laughs> you can drag in models, data sources, and in real time create AI systems. I'll say that for a different conversation in the interest of the few minutes we have left, but what you've created and what you're chasing, I think is spot on. I love it. I think uh, it is, you know, as far as you've advanced in it, you'll look back in 10 years and be like, oh my gosh, we were nowhere um, because of where it needs to go. Uh, but I want to shift gears. If you're a developer, you're somebody who's about to go into college and you're like, I love tech, I love AI, how do I get going? What do you recommend to people who want to, to become a technologist like yourself in the space and, and, you know, from starting maybe college or technical to do you need to become a PhD? Maybe talk about who you think is really successful and what you would recommend to, to that group. Yeah, you know, I, I, I might have a different take on this than some people because my background is in software engineering. Um, and so people oftentimes say, well, I want to get into AI. And so they go into, um, they might go into computer science, but they go into math and they go into statistics and they go into machine learning types of curriculum. It's available widely now. And that's great. And we need people doing that to continue to advance the field. But I think the skills required we will be uh, over time will be more generalist in nature. So the idea that, you know, software development in itself is, is is one part of it. But when you start to bring data into the equation, um, you know, my background was distributed systems. We dealt with data, but we only dealt with it in the context of transactions, uh, running transactions and systems. AI is very different. It's not a transactional system in the sense. It's much more of an analytical system. And so understanding how these analytical systems work from a software perspective uh, is really important. It's what companies like like Google and like um, you know Airbnb and like these are the companies that have been data Netflix they they're data driven from the beginning. There's a different set of skills required to harness that the power of of data and make it work in applications. That to me is probably one of the biggest skill sets uh, that's lacking in the industry wide. It's it's uh, you know this idea of call it data engineering, call it machine learning engineering or AI engineering. To me, that's uh, where a lot of focus needs to be because to build these systems the right way and make them robust, it, it does require a specialized set of engineering skills. In addition to the uh, machine learning skills um, who, uh, who create the algorithms and design them, literally design the math that goes into these systems as well. So it's really a cross-disciplinary field. Um, and I, what my advice to people would be to choose a path, one of those two paths, um, you know, some people are, very strong in math and they love the math side of it. So there's definitely curriculum there. And others like the engineering side, but don't really understand what it, what's the difference, what does it take to really build these types of systems? And so uh, curriculum around AI engineering, if you will, I think is, a, is something that we'll probably see in the near future. And that's kind of how I would push people uh, down that path if they were more interested in the engineering side. I appreciate that. I think uh, you just described a very hard employee to find. And, and once they've achieved that, they go out and start their own company. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's so plenty of high jobs high. out there for people who have those skills, for sure. It's high, yeah. high demand. I love sure. it. I'm sure you guys would take a couple yourselves if you had, <laughs> had some good hires. Um, man, I want to thank you for the time. I, I, I really appreciate your perspective. Uh, I will. I always end with this. Make a prediction. You know, Give me a, a few lines. Next, you know, you, you've taken us on a journey in the last five, seven years. What's the what's the next few look like for, and I will generalize, the AI um, space? You know, I think it's, uh, I can kind of go in, in multiple directions. I, I think uh, we're going to continue to see um, 
the application of an acceleration of uh, you know AI technologies uh, just continue to explode. Uh, we've seen this in the deep learning space just in the last five years. I and mean, I think about it, it's crazy. Five years ago, deep learning was still somewhat esoteric. Now it's mainstream. That's a very fast evolution. There's other technologies like reinforcement learning that I think are even more exciting um, that, that we're focused on uh, that will also uh, make it to the mainstream much faster than probably a lot of people realize. So we're going to see a lot of more a more mainstream uh, technology. The other thing we're going to see is because of the pandemic, there's a lot of things that have accelerated in other industries that will now be converged with AI. For example, telehealth. Um, that's something that was sort of, I wouldn't say, uh, it was in the early adopter phase uh, a year ago, and now it's mainstream. And it's, it's a very fast transformation that's happened. Um, where does AI intersect with that? That's going to be an interesting space to watch. Um, you know, so there's things like that that I, I'm always looking for those convergences, those intersections. So as the technology is advancing, what are the other things that are happening that can then be intersected with, with, with AI and we can create something really, really powerful with it. So um, I'm looking for those trends myself, the things that are happening that are really have accelerated or decelerated because of the last 12 months. <laughs> um, and, and now are going to be, uh, as we go forward, um, are going to be here to stay and they're going to be, they're going to need to be transformed and they're going to need to be, uh, uh, there's opportunities for AI to uh, be applied to them. I, I think you have a crystal ball made from AI. I think you're spot on. So we'll see. So that, that's, you just need a crystal ball uh, with AI powered right. technology from ball. cognitive scale. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for the time today. I, I will we'll leave it with that. Uh, I, I, I wish you best of luck. I, I'm truly appreciative of all the uh, insight you've given. So thank all you. All right, thanks, Thomas. Good talking to you as always. You too, Bye. take Bye. care. I hope you enjoyed the video today. Thank you for listening, watching. Please subscribe, turn on notifications, hit that like button, and drop me a comment below. AI Nerd, AI with attitude.